0: Um, over the next two months, yeah, I think it's going to go on for about two months, we're going we're to be doing a, a series of talks that are um, going to be on relationships, and we're going to look over the next two months at a whole load of different topics. Um, one of the reasons we're doing this is because relationships are, and I, I think have always been, a source for us as human beings of massive joy, um, you know, fulfillment, they enrich our lives, But also they're a source for us of tremendous pain and hurt and we can end up really damaged by relationships as well. And it's quite confusing um, sometimes, I find, to navigate your way through relationships in our world and know what does that look like to do that well. And how do we do that healthily? And what does that look like to do that before God? So there's a whole load of subjects that we're going to be looking at. And uh, one of them is going to be singleness. We're going to look at marriage as well. We're going to look at identity and discovering and knowing who we are and having confidence in that. We're going to talk about how do we handle conflict well when that occurs in our relationships. Uh, We're going to be talking about how do we... um, uh, how do we help one another through hard times? So there's going to be a whole load of stuff that's hopefully going to be really, really practical. Um, and today, I want to start with a subject that is really foundational for every, everything else. If I were to tell you that um, I had a pill... And I could give you this pill for the right price. And uh, if you took this pill, it it would kind of, in every relationship problem you have, it would help you work out the solution and enact it. So when you've got something really difficult that you need to forgive, it would help you with that when you're having a crisis with a teenager and you're like, oh my word, I just don't know what to do, how it was so much easier when they're in nappies, um, you know, it, would, it will help you work out what to say at the right point and how to say it. Um, when you've got a really difficult boss and you're like, how do, I, how do I be a good employee and represent Jesus well, and yet at the same time, this guy is such an idiot and he's asking me to do things that are completely out of, you know, out of the realms of my contract. How do I negotiate? It would guide you there. Um, it will guide you everywhere. I suspect we probably all take the pill, right? Or at least I would. I'd be like, "Give me, give me twenty of them." Um, and what we have as followers of Jesus is we do have that. We have um, this isn't a pill; it's a book. But in the book, we find that there is um, guidance for how to do relationships well. And what I love about the Bible is it's not an instruction manual uh, saying do this and do that. It's not a bunch of theory. What it is. And this is incredible to me, but this is what it is. It's a description of God. And in, in describing God, in revealing God, in making him known to us, what we find out to our utter amazement is that God does not stay up in heaven saying, hey, I invented the whole thing and now I've got, I know the theory, so you can come and talk to me about the theory of how to human well. It does, it's not God staying up in heaven talking a theory to us. What it reveals to us about God is that God became one of us. That he, that he descended, he became a human being, and he lived as Jesus. And he still is a human being. There is a human being in heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. And so what we have there is we have this perfect picture of what relationships done well look like. And there is no relational situation that we will find ourselves in um, that, that is beyond God's realm of experience. Have you been betrayed? So has he. Have you been misrepresented? So has he. Have you been misunderstood even by your own family? So has he. Have you, ha, have you, have you had to wrestle with who am I? So, so did he. He knows what it is to be a human and he knows what it is to human well. And he knows what it is to do relationships well. And what we'll find is that um, when, when, this has been my experience anyway, when my relationship with God is... Um, full and vibrant and alive I find that every other relationship that I have is shaped by that and it's not that every other relationship I have is then perfect because I'm not perfect and nor the people that we're in relationships with but but at least when when there's a problem I'm dealing with it in a better way And I'm trying to fight, even if I don't know what the solution is emotionally or just in terms of what my actions are meant to be, at least I'm having a conversation with God about it and we're going on a journey together. And so even in that, we're growing in intimacy. But when my relationship with God is on life support, then what happens is so often all my other relationships become much more brittle and much harder. Because the truth is when I'm open to him, I'm softer. And when, I, when I'm closed away from him, I'm harder. And, and so what I want to suggest is a beginning place for us as we look at this subject of relationships, which is a complex one, um, and, and it's, it, it tugs all sorts of strings in our hearts. As we look at this, the foundation for it, and more than just the foundation, the kind of the common theme that should run all the way through every relationship of our lives is our relationship with God. Like, you know, the word Blackpool comes on that stick of rock that you can buy there and you break it in half and it's all the way through. In the same way, our relationship with God, when it's thriving, that, that, that trend continues through our other relationships. doesn't mean they're all sorted all the time, but we're living rightly in them. And, um, and so I want to ask the question of, well, okay, if, if it's relationship with God and our personal relationship with God that, that kind of um, allows us to do other relationships well, how do we do... Relationship with God, well. And um, it sometimes is a bit hard to know the answer to that question because relationship, God is invisible. Isn't that annoying? Um, I really wish he had WhatsApp as well because that would be amazing. If I could just WhatsApp him and say, look, what do I do in this situation? He could send me a message back and, you know, I'd just do what he said if I liked it. And uh, and it would make relationship with him much more straightforward. So we have this kind of thing of like, we're all in relationship with God. If we said yes to Jesus Christ, we've come into intimacy with the Father but, but he feels sometimes distant, and it's hard to know, well, what am I meant to do? How can I have a relationship with you, and how can I do that well? And this is where um, we want to look again to Jesus as someone who, as a human being, did relationship with God his Father. And I was watching this, um, this series on Netflix over Christmas called Inside Bill's Brain. I don't know if anyone else watched that, but it's about Bill Gates. It's this documentary. Three-part documentary about Bill Gates. And um, as I was watching it, what I was doing is I was kind of like looking at Bill Gates's habits. You know, not just what Bill Gates says, but what Bill Gates does. Because I was thinking, if, if Bill Gates does this, maybe if I do it, I too could become the richest person alive. And so I'm like, okay, what does Bill Gates do? Bill Gates gets up at 6 a.m. every morning. Okay, I need to start getting up 6 a.m. every day. Um, Bill Gates carries a bag of books around with him. He clearly has not discovered Kindle, maybe he has a phobia of technology. But he carries a big bag of books around with him. So I'm like, I need to start carrying bags and bags of books everywhere I go. And he's got all, a whole bunch of other habits. And I think probably I'm not the only person that does that. When you hear about someone you admire, you read their story or you see the documentary or whatever it is, then, then you look at their habits, the things they cultivate. How do they eat? How do they exercise? How do they raise their family? How do they organize their time? Like you look at that sort of stuff because you think, well, maybe if I had the same habits and the same rhythms that this person has, then my life will look the same as their life. And that's not a bad thing to do. That's a good thing to do. In fact, it's such a good thing to do that I would suggest we begin to do that more and more with the Gospels, with the stories of Jesus' life, because they are, in effect, documentaries about the life of Jesus Christ. And when we, when we watch them or when we read them, we want to look not just for what Jesus says and not just for those moments where he acts to do a miracle, but just his life habits. Like, what's the stuff that Jesus will get up to? And what can we learn and what can we glean from that? And so I want to, um, for this talk, pick up on one particular practice that we see in the life of Jesus. And I want to say as a disclaimer to this, um, there's, a, there's a preacher called John Mark Comer, who I know some of you guys have listened to. And two, I've just been reading one of his books, The Ruthless Elimination of Harry, it's called, um, from whom I have stolen about 85% of this. And I'm acknowledging that now in case he listens to this and sues me. Um, But by the time I get to the 7 p.m., it's all going to be original Croft because that's how it works with preachers. Um, But I've nicked 85% of this. And John Mark Comer, what he's doing is he looks at the life of Jesus for this purpose and says, what habits does Jesus cultivate and what can we learn? And um, so the habit that I want to look at is Jesus' habit of silence. And solitude. Another way of putting that is Jesus' habit of getting away from everybody else in order to be in the stillness and be in the quiet and be alone with his Father. Now, I am aware that when I use the words silence and solitude, that all my extrovert brothers and sisters here quietly die inside. I am one of God's chosen people, and by that I mean an introvert. Uh, And so for some of us, this will come easier than others. I just want to acknowledge that right at the start. Nevertheless, all right, wherever you are on the extrovert introvert spectrum, look at Jesus' life, and let's just consider this together, all right? So what do we see? Um, Matthew chapter 3, his ministry begins. And it begins with him being baptized. So he goes down into the River Jordan. He comes back up again. The Father speaks over him. You're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And then Jesus, it says this, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So his ministry is really just this kind of the launch pad for it. And the first thing Jesus does, I don't know if you would do this if you were launching an advertising campaign or a political marketing campaign or whatever. But the first thing Jesus does is he withdraws. He's, he's by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who tells him to do it. Leads him into this place called the wilderness. And throughout the Gospels, you you get this insight into Jesus' relationship with this place, the wilderness. Like another way of translating the word, the New Testament was written in Greek. Another way of translating the word for wilderness is the desert, or the deserted place, or the desolate place, or the solitary place, or the quiet place. So the first thing he does is he heads off into the quiet place. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's fasting. And then what happens at the end of this story is the devil comes to him and the devil tempts him. And that there's this massive kind of standoff between Jesus and, and, and the, the kind of like his arch enemy, the devil. Um, and, and you read that and you can think, and I, I remember thinking this the first time I read it. Gosh, that's a bit... Isn't that just like the devil, you know, to come for you when you're hungry? Uh, that's where he always gets me when I'm hungry and tired and cross and uh, feeling lonely because I haven't seen anybody for ages. And then the tempter comes and tries to get you. Isn't that typical of the devil to do that? So why does the spirit lead Jesus to a place of weakness in the wilderness where he's just going to be so vulnerable to the temptations of the devil? And what this guy John Mark says is when we think about it like that, we've got it wrong. The wilderness, the quiet place... The solitary place is not, in fact, the place of weakness, but the place of strength. And he says there's another way of looking at this. The Spirit leads Jesus to this place of of quiet where he's alone with his Father for 40 days because it's only after 40 days of praying and fasting and being with his God and being with his own soul. Only in that place did Jesus have the strength to have a face-off with the devil and come away unscathed. So consider the launch pad for his whole ministry was, was from this place of stillness and solitude and silence. Then Jesus comes back. Mark chapter 1, his ministry begins with a very busy day in Capernaum. So he gets up super early. He is teaching in the synagogue. He then uh, does a a whole morning of teaching. Then he goes to have lunch at Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is not well, so Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Then he spends the whole afternoon with all these demands on him, constant demands. And then we're told that he's there late into the night. The crowds of Capernaum have gathered around because words got out that he's a healer. And he's healing them of their sicknesses, and he's casting out their demons. And then Jesus crashes into bed. I don't know what time, but it's late. And uh, if that were me, having just had a full day where you, where you just kind of like, you know, have you ever had one of those days where you're giving and giving and giving emotionally and, uh, and then you've got kind of an option, really, as to what you do the next day. If it were me, I know what I would do the next day, which is I would attempt to have a lion <laughs> and then I would probably go and have a slow, lazy breakfast somewhere and then I don't know what I would do. Of course, this is all a fantasy land because I have small children, so none of that would happen. But if it were my choice, you can bet that's what I'd choose. And instead of Jesus having just had this utterly exhausting uh, day the day before, this is what he does next. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place, same word, wilderness, where he prayed. So think about it like this, right? He has 40 days in the, in the solitary place, in the, in the quiet place. Then he comes back, does one day of ministry, and then he goes back to the solitary place. He goes back to the quiet place. And what that tells us is that this for Jesus was not a one-off thing, just a one-off 40 days. This became for him, and this was for him, a rhythm in his life. In the same way that Bill carries his bag of books around, Jesus headed off repeatedly time and again to the Eremos, to the, the silent place where he could be with his God. And this is fascinating, because what happens next is the disciples come looking for him. They find him out in the solitary place, and it says this, Mark 1:36. Simon and his companions went to look For him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. We've gone viral, basically, Jesus is what they're saying. We it's been phenomenal. Like everyone in Capernaum loves you. This is amazing. We're getting some traction here. We're building momentum. So we've got to go back, Jesus, back to Capernaum, and we've got to carry on the ministry. You know, you've got to build on yesterday. It can't just be a one thing, a one-time thing. And then Jesus' response is fascinating. He just says this, Mark 1:38. Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. I can't imagine how the disciples reacted when he said that. Let's go somewhere else. That is why I've come. And what's amazing is, is for any of us today, if you feel like you've got a message to bring, and then you suddenly find you're becoming popular in a place, then surely you would stay there. Um, because that's where you're finding having an impact. And you would build on that. And you'd find another clever way of communicating. But um, Jesus is, and I think this comes from his time in the solitary place, is so rooted in his calling. He's so grounded in his identity. He knows who he is. I'm going to talk about more about this later in the series. He knows what he's for. And therefore, he is able to say yes. And equally important, he's able to say no. That's not what I'm here for. Let's go somewhere else. That comes from this time in the solitary place, this space uh, with his God. And then, as as the Gospels continue the story, we continue to see that this is a top priority for him. So, there's another uh, story that I love in Mark chapter 6. The disciples have been busy, and they've been busy doing ministry, kingdom stuff, telling people about Jesus and stuff like that, and they're knackered. And they're so exhausted that um, they, you know it's so relentless. We're told in the Bible that they don't even have time to eat. Have you ever had a day like that? I'm sure we all have, right, where it's just full on. You don't even have time to grab lunch. You just rush. From the moment you kind of get up in the morning, the firing gun goes off, and you are like, Pfft until you collapse in bed at night. You've barely got time to look after yourself. So how does Jesus respond to to the disciples being in this situation? This is Mark chapter 6, verse 31. He says to his exhausted, tired, worn out, overworked disciples. He said it to them then, and he says it to them this morning. He says this, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, what I would have said, had I been Jesus in that moment, is I would have said, you guys need a holiday. And so what I mean by that is you need to watch some Netflix, you need to drink a beer, you need to have a takeaway, you need to have some chill time, right? Not like Christmas, because that was too busy. You need a proper vacation. And what I think is fascinating is that Jesus actually in that moment, he does talk about rest for sure, but I think the emphasis of what he's saying is you need to come And be with me alone. You need to be with me by yourselves. And in order to do that, we need to get away from the noise. And we need to get away from the crowds. And we need to get away from the people. We need to go to the quiet place, me and you together. And so they, they set off across Lake Galilee looking for a quiet place. But again, I love the realism of the Bible because um, <laughs> it doesn't work out like that. They, they kind of they land on the other side of Lake Galilee. Rumor has spread that Jesus is in town. So 5,000 people have jogged around the edge of the lake and they're all there waiting for them when they turn up. Can you imagine planning a trip to Center Parks? You're like, we're going to get away. We're going to go to Woburn. It's going to be phenomenal. And then you turn up at Center Parks and there are 5,000 of your colleagues all saying, why did you not reply to my email? Email. right? So he turns out, he lands on the shore, and it's like, uh-oh, this is not going to go how we thought this. Was. We thought this was a spa day at, the, at Lake Galilee, and it turns out there's 5,000 people plus, and uh, they all want something. And, and Jesus doesn't send them all away. This is what is lovely about it. He doesn't say, oh, my word, guys, we really need some time alone. We need some space. I've got to be in the solitary place sometimes. Can you leave us, please? He, um, he has compassion, and, uh, you know, we'll have times where we plan times in the solitary place and life interrupts, you know. A friend is being dumped or, you know, a, a colleague really does need a help or one of our kids is sick. It doesn't always work out. But, um, but so, so, so Jesus ministers to them with the disciples, feeds 5,000 people, as you do with a little boy's picnic. But that's not where the story ends. Because what happens is after it finishes, Jesus sends all the crowd away, he gets, puts the disciples back in the boat, sends them off, and then Jesus goes up a mountain at night and prays. And we can read that and we can think, isn't Jesus so spiritual? You know, he spends a whole night in prayer on a mountain. What a spiritual guy he was. And it's not that that's not true, but I think if if that's the angle that we take on it, then perhaps we've missed what's going on here. The point is this. Jesus is so busy, there are so many demands on him throughout the day, that the only time he can find to be with his father is at night on a mountain. And so he takes that. If that's his only option, that's what he'll go for. Another way of putting the same thing is this. Time with his father, time alone in the quiet place, was more important to Jesus than even sleep itself. And listen, Jesus loved sleep. All right, so don't hear me wrong on that. The number of times Jesus has to get woken up in the Bible because he's fallen asleep in a boat, or you know, he's always falling asleep and having a nap. So he's not anti-sleep; he loves naps. But but he, he what he cares about even more is spending time with his father in the quiet place. Now, as a parent of young children, I can tell you there are few things more important to me in my life than sleep. And I've read this, and I have been convicted by it. I've been challenged by it, because what I've, what I've seen is as you look at the pattern of Jesus' life, the busier he becomes, the more often he withdraws. And for us, it's almost always the reverse, isn't it? The busier he becomes, the more space he carves out, even if it is in the middle of the night, to be with his Father. And of course, the challenge for us is to recognize, first of all, If Jesus needs that, boy, do I need it. And it's not to say, legalistically, which I think sometimes the church has made this mistake, and I've probably made it as I've taught. Legalistically, we've all got to have quiet times, guy. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, man, we've got to make space for our God in life. Because it's not going to make itself and, and, you know, one of the questions people sometimes ask when they come to Soul Survivor is, why do you have ministry time? Like, why do you have a space at the end of a service or sometimes in the middle where, where you make space for the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is, is not because we can ever make God do anything. Okay, God, this is the time for you to move now. Please come. We can't make it happen. It doesn't matter how many songs we sing. doesn't matter how many talks you preach. Like, you can't make God move. But this is what we can do. We can make space for him. We can make the space for him to move. And because his heart is generous and because his, his, um, his desire is always to give us good things, his desire is to love us so very well, when we make space for him, he fills that space with his love. We do that here as a community but also what this is the point when we make space for him in our lives as individuals when we just we're going to carve out some time to be with him just to give him our full attention then he fills that space also with his presence and with his love but it's hard and so for the remaining time that i have left i want to ask the question really practically recognizing that for jesus this mattered for us, it's not that we, that we have to. It's just that actually this is the source of our life. Um, why wouldn't we want to? When we, when we recognize that, then the question becomes really practically, how? How? Um, how do we, in the modern 21st century, make space for silence and solitude? And um, I want to level with you as I give this talk. If you'd asked me this question um, four and a half years ago, I would have considered myself something of an expert. Because I was pretty good at making space for silence and solitude. Helps that I'm an introvert. That's a big factor. Big plus. It's like a happy place for me. Woo! I'm being recharged. You're draining me right now by being in the same room as me. So there's a big positive for me in that. I'm naturally personality-wise, geared towards it. I'm also personality-wise much more legalistic. So I can set myself goals and guilt myself into doing them sometimes. That's not healthy, it's just how I am. Uh, But four and a half years ago, the first of my now four sons was born. And the level of crazy in my life went from being pretty crazy to this is now out of control crazy. And um, I have found over the last four years myself struggling, really struggling to find any kind of rhythm um, to find a time where I can where I can be with God and it's meaningful and it's happening regularly uh, and it's been it's been tough for me. The saving grace, if I'm really honest, the saving grace has been that this is my job. <laughs> uh, you pay me to pray, and so that helps me a lot because it means I I you know I have to I have to find time somewhere. But I have thought to myself repeatedly, if I had a different job, you know if I if if i was doing what some of you have to do and i know what you have to do you know some of you are working uh, night shifts and so your body clock is completely gaga some of you who are working, you're working 12, 14-hour shifts, 12, 14-hour days sometimes, sometimes 10 days back to back. I, work, I live five minutes down the road, so my commute is a five-minute walk. For some of you, you, you live in, you're commuting to London every day, and it's an hour and a half, two hours there, two hours back. You don't get back till eight o'clock at night. Um, I, I'm so aware that if I had a different job, I, don't, I think I would have been utterly stumped. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how you do this when you've got little kids. I don't know how you do this when, you know, it's, it's so demanding. And the pace of our lives, you add on top of the work stuff, all the entertainment, all the extracurricular activities, all the things that we try and cram into every single second of our day. And, it, and, and suddenly the, the, the notion that we would have portions of our day we could just spend in silence and solitude just becomes almost laughable, doesn't it? It's like, are you kidding me? It's just not realistic. Let's, let's, let's wake up and smell the coffee, which is the only way we can wake up when we're so knackered. And, and, and for us, um, we've got to work out what does it look like now? And one of the books that's really helped me with this is, is, um, is actually not a book to do with following God at all. It's a book to do with being a dad. It's a book called 60 Minute Father. Uh, if, if you're a dad, I would highly recommend reading it. It's just a short little book. The idea is you read it in 60 minutes because we're all so busy. 60 Minute Father. And uh, in this book, it's an old book. I know it's old because I was telling Keith Johnson about it and Keith Johnson's got grandchildren. And he said, I read that when my children were born. Um, so it's been around forever. He can't go to the young adults night. But the, um, the, the, the guy who wrote it, Rob Parsons, he just tells these stories about being a dad. And really the heart of it. Um, is he, and Times have changed a little bit since he wrote the book, but the heart of what he 's saying is he 's saying the danger is as a, as a father you can be so caught up in in work and so caught up with and this is something many of us do right saying yes to all the demands from all the people that want something from you that you are forced in the end to say no to the people you love the most and who matter most to you because they're the ones who are most going to understand, right? They're the ones that, that, that will understand when you let, you, you let them down, but the boss won't. You can end up giving in to, to all of these demands to the extent that you end up squandering the years, the few precious years that you're going to have with your children when they're little. And so... Um, as part of that kind of like encouragement to spend time with your, with your kids, he then says, here's the first objection um, that many of us will have. And this is absolutely, in my book, the number one objection to why we don't spend time in silence and solitude. There's a number of them, but this is probably the top one. I'm too busy. Or am I the only person who thinks that? I'm too busy. And then what he does is he takes that as a challenge. And he says, he says are you? And I remember reading it, thinking, "Yes, Rob, I am." You don't know my life, mate. Let me let me give you the. shall I show you the diary? Like you know. But but then he just he just asks it as a question. It's such a good question to ponder because we all say, "Busy? How are you? I'm busy." Right. We all do that. So let's just reflect for a minute on what we mean by what we say when we're busy. Um, he 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 just says two things on it. Uh, well, he says more than more than two, but two I'm going to mention. The first one is. We can, we, we can trick ourselves into thinking that there will come a day when we're not busy anymore. And um, we can say to ourselves, when I just finish that project at work, when I get that big thing done, then I'll have more time. Or we can say to ourselves, you know, when my friend is no longer going through this massive struggle um, with depression, maybe they need an awful lot of support from me, when that's not happening anymore, then I'll have some more time that I can devote to this or that. Uh, when I don't have, have to cross off all these extracurricular activities, take the kids to swimming, take the kids to football, take the kids to cheerleading, take the kids to whatever your kids are into. When, when I'm not in that phase of my life anymore, then I'll, then I'll have some time. But, but the, the, the slower days is just around the corner. It's just not quite here yet. So I just better hang in there for the slower day, right? And the first thing he says is, that's a huge myth. <laughs> he says, if you're busy now, you'll be busy tomorrow. And there may come a day where we're in a retirement home and we're not physically able to get up and do anything and that will be kind of like we've got some time on our hands. But until that arrives, we will be busy. And, um, and so recognizing that, then it becomes a question of, well, what do I value enough to give my time to? And here's the second thing he says. Um, and again, I found this one really convicting. He says, sometimes um, we say something like this, I'm always busy. Now, not all of you will say that. This is definitely one I say. I'm always busy, and he just he just asked the question, "Are you?" Is like, what do you mean by "I'm always busy"? And he tells this story of a guy who works in a factory. He's like a factory manager. And um, he says, Let me tell you about Joe's week. Joe's got this big, big project he's got to do for his boss, um, but he's not really very good at prioritizing his time. So what he does is he procrastinates. Anyone ever done that? Uh, I really don't want to do this, so I'm just going to put it off and put it off and put it off. And we, we tell ourselves reasons why we're putting off. I'll clear my inbox and then I'll be able to relax and then I'll be able to concentrate on this thing. I'll have more time to devote to it or whatever. And so he charts Joe's working week. And people keep coming to Joe and saying, Have you got time, Joe? Can I just interrupt you for five minutes? And he hasn't really got the time, but he doesn't want to say no. So he says, Yeah, okay, then come on in. 55. Five minutes later, they leave and, uh, and Joe's promised his boy that he's going to play football with him at four o'clock um, when he gets back from work one evening. And so he has this day knowing, right, today I've really got to smash this project. Has another typical day of procrastination and getting interrupted and, and, and not getting around to it. And then at four o'clock, his boss is breathing down his neck saying, you've got to have it done by tomorrow. So Joe goes home, he walks through the door and his boy says, are you ready to come play football? And he says, I can't do it today, son, I'm so sorry. And his wife has a go at him and she's like, come on, you promised him, you know, you said you were going to be there and he's been waiting for you since he got home from school. And, and he just says to the two of them, you don't understand the kind of pressure that I'm under at work. You don't get the kind of pressure that I'm under and the point Rob Parsons makes is not that this guy doesn't have a lot to do he does have a lot to do, but that there is a way of structuring intentional time management that would mean that we're freeing time for relationship I found that really challenging now I know none of you have ever procrastinated but if you put a little camera in my room in this church, you'd be horrified and Um, one of the things that I've been pondering is, how can I, all right? If I'm willing to rearrange my life for my family, and I am, how can I rearrange my life, whatever is going on, that I would be with my God? Because if I'm with him and I'm near to him, then all the other stuff will flow from there. If I've got a difficult thing to forgive, being near my father in heaven and talking about it and how painful it is and how much they've hurt me again and do I really have to forgive them? And him saying... Yeah, you kind of do, but I get it. It's hard. Or, or me being with him and talking, and saying, "Look, my, you know, my teenage son is a nightmare. Where did, where did I go wrong? They were so sweet, you know," and, and him saying, "I understand what it's like to have kids that walk away. From, you know, I understand that." Then, then, then you lead from a place of softness as a parent, to be there as a as a friend and think, "I, don't, I just, I just don't have capacity to meet this other person's needs. Like, I want to be there for them, I really do, but their needs are more than any one person can meet." Especially me, what can I do? Like, spending time with him opens us up to hearing his wisdom and hearing his life. And more than that, it opens us up to having his heart. Like, we don't get his heart by just trying to have his heart, we get his heart by proximity to him. We catch it, it's like a contagious thing. And so, I've tried to work out well, I've missed it, I feel like, for years now, and I don't want to go much longer with this, like it, how can I do it, Father? How can I do it? And I've had to look at my diary and work out my own time scale. I'll tell you what it is for me. You're going to have to work it out for you. I've realized, if I look at my day, basically, from the moment one, and just because of the life phase I'm in, I'm a you know, parent of four little boys, um, from the moment my children wake up, it's game over, <laughs> basically. I can't even go to the toilet. And, and so um, I, I know that, Really, from that point on, I'm not going to have much time to be with my, my father in the sense of carved out, giving him my full attention. Obviously, we're always with him, but in that sort of solitary, quiet place, I'm not going to have the time. And um, so, so uh, they wake up at pretty early, and then we're looking after them. Then I go off to work. And Beth does all the hard work. I go to work for a rest, and she stays at home and does the hard work of looking after them. Then I come home, we continue to look after them together, and then we put them to bed. And by the time they're in bed, which is about 7 o'clock at night, I am either heading back out the door to go back to work, because there's a lot of evening stuff here, or I'm so whacked, I am not good for anything. So that's my situation. And so I've had to work out, well, what, what am I going to do? And, um, you know, I did notice that when it was when it was a gym day, because that's one of my things that I enjoy doing, I was able to get up early enough for that. And so I thought, do you know what? If I can do it for the gym, I can, I can do it um, to be with Jesus. Uh, and the first day I tried that, I, I basically stayed in bed and fell asleep. Um, but, but that's been my, my where, I, where I've come to is, is I've realized I can't control what time my children wake up, sadly. If I could, they would wake up at the crack of 11.30 a.m., um, <laughs> But I can control what time I wake up. And so what I've decided is I've just said, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up at this time now. And you know what? If, if they wake up after 10, 15 minutes, well, that's 10, 15 minutes more than I would have got otherwise. But if I get lucky and my children do not wake up, then I'll have however, however much time it is until they actually do wake up. And, and that, for me, is a really simple thing. But I think it's workable. I've thought about it a lot. I think it's workable. It's probably only workable if I go to bed at a certain time. And that's in a whole other area I've just had to reflect on. How do I make sure that I'm not like, you know, okay, I will watch this next episode. Um, you know, how do I make sure I go to bed on time? But it's workable. And it's a rhythm. And I'm actually now quite excited about it. Because for the first time in a few years, I, I feel like, oh, man, I've got, some, I've got a plan. Where, yes, it's not going to be easy, but what worthwhile thing ever is? Where, where I, can, I can be before him and just listen to him. And let me tell you how the plan's going, all right? Sometimes I've woken up and I've spent time with my father and all the churning emotion that goes around in me has settled down and I've heard him speak, whether it's just by reading a passage from the Bible or just by him reminding me of something that maybe I've forgotten I've heard him speak, and it shaped my day. And other times, I have woken up, I've sat in my little chair, and I have basically fallen back to sleep. And other days, I have woken up, and after about 30 seconds, one of my children has started screaming, and we're off to the races. That's how it's going (laughs) so far. Um, But what I find with it is, more often than not, that little window breathes its life. Through the rest of the day you don 't need to do it early in the morning if you 're a night person, do it at night. If it works for you to have silence and solitude on a commute if you 've got two hour commute, stick your noise canceling headphones in, cancel some noise out. The, the goal of it is to silence the external noise as much as is possible, all the message notifications and to quieten down the internal noise that rages inside of us. Do this, do that you 've forgotten this you 're not like this to quieten that down. And to be alone, the solitude part, is not about escaping from people. It's not about, ooh, let's escape from everybody. It's about being alone with him. It's a positive thing of being alone with him. And so find my encouragement for all of us, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else, I hope you hear that, is that when we begin to make this space, carve it out to give him our attention, we will find that is what he's been waiting for. And there is no relationship problem you've got, however complicated, that he hasn't heard before. And that he won't meet with his kindness and his gentleness and the help of his spirit. This is the foundation for everything that's to come. And it's what will continue to run, I hope, if we do this as we should, as a thread all the way through our talks on relationships.